Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 13, 2017, we talk with Alga Oliker, Russia and Eurasia Program Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Her article in the new WPJ winter issue is Russian Brinksmanship, Don't Confuse Unpredictability with Strength. We'll also point out other top features in the new winter issue, cover line interrupted, with the unique perspective of all female editors and writers. But first, some top news of the week. In his first post-campaign news conference, President-elect Donald Trump finally accepted the U.S. intelligence community's conclusion that Russian hacking was meant to tip election 2016 in his favor. But he slammed that community once again for possibly leaking an unverifiable report, secretly floating around Washington for months, that Russia had damaging evidence of Trump's sexual and financial improprieties. In Senate confirmation hearings, Secretary of State nominee Rex Tillerson would not say if he'll advise continuing the U.S. sanctions ordered by President Obama in response to the Russian hacking. Dubious about sanctions when he was boss of ExxonMobil, Tillerson now agrees they're an important tool. Whether a stymied two-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could ever be a reality remains to be seen, he said. House Republican Mike Pompeo, the CIA director nominee, said he would be guided by operative U.S. laws implementing the Iran nuclear deal and banning torture for interrogation. Retired Marine General James Mattis blamed Russia, but also China and international terrorism for the biggest attack since World War II on world order. And asked if the U.S. military was up to that challenge, he replied, no, sir. The Senate also voted a budget plan laying the groundwork for repeal and replacement of Obamacare, but how soon and with what complex alternative remains a divisive issue even within the GOP majority. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. See positive reactions. On the contrary, NATO is strengthening its rhetoric and its aggressive actions close to our borders. In this environment, we must pay special attention to strengthening our country's defense capabilities. As for the newly elected president of the United States, Sir Donald Trump, well, there's nothing new about it. Uh, during his election campaign, he said that uh, the U.S. needs uh, to uh, uh, bolster its uh, nuclear capabilities and uh, its uh, armed forces in general. There's nothing new. No one challenges that. If you listen carefully to what I said, then I said that we were uh, certainly uh, improving our nuclear capabilities. And uh, at the end, I said that Russia today is stronger than any potential aggressor. It's very important. I used that word, aggressor, and I didn't use that word accidentally. On two occasions back in June last year, President Vladimir Putin framed Russian conventional and nuclear weapons development as a response to aggressive NATO rhetoric and military preparations nearby. 
He conveniently failed to mention that the U.S. and European nations involved were responding to Russia's earlier aggression across its border with Ukraine and unilateral reabsorption of Crimea from Ukraine. In December, many in the media saw nuclear jousting, at least rhetorically, when Putin promised to strengthen Russian nuclear forces to, quote, reliably penetrate any existing or prospective missile defense systems, possibly prompted by little-noticed U.S. legislation authorizing renewed research, development, test, and evaluation of space-based missile defense systems, legislation signed by President Obama the very next day. But Putin quickly turned down the heat by minimizing as, quote, nothing new, President-elect Trump's let-it-be-an-arms-race response. He could not, however, resist pointing out it was Washington that withdrew from a landmark anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. And at year's end, Putin ignored his foreign ministry's first angry threat of retaliation for new Obama sanctions and expulsions prompted by Moscow hacking meant to tip the U.S. election, according to U.S. intelligence. Rejecting the usual copycat counter-sanctions, Putin even invited children of U.S. diplomats to Kremlin holiday celebrations. The episodes dramatized Putin's unpredictability and obsession with increasing Moscow's stature in the world, especially to the detriment of Washington. But does that add up to a serious strategy with long-term prospects for increased geopolitical influence and economic benefits? especially in the pending era of similarly unpredictable, if until now admiring, President Trump. Those and related questions are addressed in the new WPJ winter issue by Alga Oliker, Russia and Eurasia Program Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. It's headlined, Russian Brinksmanship, Don't Confuse Unpredictability with Strength, which might also be a tip to Trump. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Dr. Oliker, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me. Uh, to say that Putin is primarily interested in global stature and respect without a coherent strategy, you argue, doesn't mean that Russia today has no concrete goals, especially in areas once part of the Soviet Union. Give us some specifics, starting with Ukraine and how you see that particular effort playing out. Russia has never made a secret of the fact that it sees the states of the former Soviet Union uh, usually excluding the Baltics, um, as what's meant to be a natural sphere of influence, right? If Russia wants global stature and respect, it wants to be seen as a great power, great powers have influence, surely they must be able to have influence over areas that weren't just part of the Soviet Union, they were part of Russian empire. Um, so any efforts uh, by other states, uh, mostly Western states, to reach out to these countries or to reach out to Russia itself to bring them into Western institutions has been seen as an attack on Russia's security when it comes to its neighbors and Russia's sovereignty when it comes to Russia itself. Um, I think Russia sees it as kind of a creeping imperialism, as it were. It's never seen NATO as a voluntary alliance of, as, of like-minded states. It's always seen it as an American project to gather satellites, and now that, that's expanding to near Russia's own borders. So in Ukraine, Russia saw, Russia saw the Maidan movement against uh, Yanukovych uh, not as a spontaneous frustration with corruption and turning back a longstanding policy to pursue EU association, it saw it as Western interference to drum up these protests uh, to create the appearance of um, 
of local opposition, but really a Western plot to undermine the system and put in a more Western-friendly um, and, in Russia's view, Western-controlled government. And being able to capture that telephone call of a uh, Clinton State Department official uh, uh, aiding, supporting uh, the anti-Russian political forces certainly gave him uh, uh, some ammunition. Right. So, I mean, look, American support for the opposition was really one of enthusiasm once it emerged. Uh, some of the people in the Maidan movement had some ties to the West, but most of them probably didn't. Uh, and, you know, what happened... It, it was, yes, people in the U.S. State Department, people in the embassy uh, did get kind of excited, not because uh, I would argue uh, these folks were going to be pro-Western or pro-U.S. in that sense, but because, yes, it did suggest an opposition to corrupt rule and kind of a belief in democracy and all of these things, and they do get excited about that. But that's not at all how it was seen in Russia, and, you know, I don't think the Russians are making it up either. So, you know, if you have that perspective, it's completely understandable that you see the phone calls that were intercepted, U.S. officials, EU officials, all of that, through the lens of, oh, my God, they've planned this all along not, oh, they're trying to figure it out, too, but they're very, very excited about the prospects. Uh, the flip side of that coin, how do, you, uh, how do Putin's goals and Russian support for right-wing opposition groups across Europe connect now with Brexit and the rising tide of anti-government, uh, anti-globalist populism? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question, and I think one uh, that is really worth unpacking. So there's evidence of varying degrees of Russian support for right-wing, sometimes left-wing, political parties in Europe. And you hear a lot of uh, laudits of Putin specifically from right-wing leaders, um, Marine Le Pen, Viktor Orban, um, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, so that that's one side of this. The other side of this is you know, kind of what's driving the relative success of parties on the right, the ones that are espousing nationalism, traditionalism, what they're going to call conservative values. And that's rooted in something that gets termed populism, which is one of those words that everybody has their own definition for. But for a lot of people, what it means is this marriage of nationalism, anti-establishment feeling, this idea that populists are the voice of the people that's rising up against both corrupt elites and outsiders who don't represent that, that true nation, that true populism popular will. So that and that combination of anti-elitism and xenophobia kind of conflates um, elites and outsiders as the adversary to the true people. In Europe, some of, a lot of that has come to mean anti-EU feeling and hence Brexit. Now, Russia has been anti-NATO for as long as there's been NATO, um, but overall it's seen the whole system as constructed against Russia, something we talked about a little bit before. Um, and their anti-EU feeling um, is a bit newer, really, since 2013. But I think what's been going on, it's not that the Kremlin started out thinking they could bring down the European system by backing a few right-wing parties, but the European system is in crisis. And I think Russia is starting to realize that some of its efforts, um, although marginal in terms of their immediate effects, can actually help tip uh, can help tip processes. We underestimated the public frustration. So Russia's actions, while not decisive, they help along a process um, potentially of deterioration that, that speaks to systems that don't work for their publics any longer. These are two different things. Russia isn't causing it. The causes are internal uh, to, to Europe. Um, but Russia is certainly exploiting these fissures because it's seeing them as potentially helping it 
um, bring down a system that hasn't been good for Russia. Uh, you know, the real question is uh, what, what comes along in its place. And I haven't seen a real constructive answer, to be honest, either from the populace in Europe or from the Russians. And where do you see Putin's game plan going if the U.S. under Trump cuts back its leadership role in Europe? You know, it depends a lot on just how cutting back that leadership role happens. But historically, the United States pulling out of Europe has not been good for either European security or U.S. security. Uh, every time the United States tries to leave, things get terrible and it gets pulled back in. It's, uh, it's tough for the U.S. to distance itself from Europe. Um, but, I mean, I think the real challenge is that Russia, for all that it wants new security arrangements in Europe, doesn't know what new security arrangements would look like. I mean, I think there's a certain nostalgia for 19th century uh, balance of power type systems, but we also all remember where those got us. The Russians also want to be negotiating with the United States. Again, they see NATO as a way for the U.S. to be a puppet master. So if the U.S. truly pulls out and the system continues to weaken, who does Russia make the deals with? Um, I mean, there's always the possibility the German leadership will somehow be sufficient. But that rise of populist movements we've talked about makes all of this a bit doubtful. So, I mean, I think, I think this is really a great unknown and something that's, uh, I think, not being thought about enough of, you know, what really does happen if, what, what are some of the uh, possible trend, uh, contingencies? What are some of the possible ways that Europe could evolve? And how does that affect uh, American security, Russian security, and European security. I, I do think this is something we need to be thinking harder about than we have been. In the Middle East, intervention on behalf of President Assad in Syria certainly raised Russia's profile significantly uh, at an awfully bloody cost. A UN ceasefire and peace talk plans may or may not hold up. What solid gain for Putin do you see? So, you know, it's, uh, you have to remember rather cynically that the bloody cost has not been to Russia. Uh, Russia has actually waged a fairly low-cost intervention in Syria in terms of both money and Russian lives, even notwithstanding the TU-154 crash at the end of December, which is being blamed on mechanical or pilot uh, failure um, at this stage. So, you know, that, that, that killed a lot of people, a lot of Russians, but, you know, it's, it's not being considered... Um, at least by the Russians, it's being considered by the Russians as a tragedy, not an effect of the of the war. So what what has Russia done? Um, so working with Syria and Iran, Russian support has uh, weakened the non-Daesh opposition to the point that they're not a sustainable force. You can argue as to whether they were ever a really sustainable force um, beforehand, but now they're pretty much gone. There's really no one left for the West to support with any real effectiveness. Um, the result is that Assad has been shored up. He is not going anywhere, uh, though, and Russia's always believed that was the only path to stability. So in that sense, Russia has gotten what it was trying to get. The problem is that stability. Um, just having Assad stay in power certainly doesn't make Syria stable. It doesn't make the refugees come home. There's the question, even if the ceasefire holds, of rebuilding, but I don't think we're there yet. You have an awful lot of different groups who have been fighting who, whose aims are not the same. Um, the Russians and the Americans have been backing the Kurds. The Turks, who are now working with the Russians on the ceasefire, are terrified of any sort of Kurdish autonomy. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of challenges here. I mean, I think... Cleaning up Syria is uh, is going to be one of the great problems of uh, 
of the coming years. And again, Russia had a clear plan in that it didn't want Assad to go because it was afraid of the chaos that would follow. But even with Assad, you've got a good bit of chaos. So the question of who is able to manage that uh, has not been answered. Is it something that Putin will find it as difficult to get out of, as uh, you've said in the context of Europe, uh, the U.S. has been to you know, break away its ties from the problems there? Is he, is he stuck in a kind of a, uh, a big muddy? I don't know. I mean, I think, look, he could leave and leave the mess to the Iranians and the Syrians and the Turks to try to sort out and clean up. But, uh, you know, then he's not playing kind of the the, the solution, uh, the, um, the great power that comes in and fixes things role that I think he wants Russia to play here. I think, uh, but what Russia has been able to do with Syria, again, is a fairly effective uh, bang for the buck operation, where at a pretty low cost, uh, you know, low bar for use of military force, but very small scale military force, to get real effects. The problem is that how that, you know, it's often easier to fight the war than to get a peace. This is something the United States has figured out uh, at great pains uh, since 2001. So, how does Russia handle that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think their hope is that they will get the West involved to at least bankroll some of this. But what if that doesn't work? What if the United States really is isolationist? Uh, and again, what if you can't get the parties on the ground to cut the right deals? Uh, and finally, I mean, the destruction of Syria is tremendous. You know, this is, uh, you know, re- rebuilding from there, even if you can get to that point, which again, I emphasize we're not there yet. Um, huge challenge, and you can look to Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and Afghanistan before that, uh, for example, of just how hard that is. You paint an interesting picture of paradox for Putin in Asia. Uh, Cultivating stronger ties with many developing nations there could put him at odds with now-dominant Beijing, especially on claims in the South China Sea. Say more about that. Russia has long wanted to play more of a role in Asia. It's part of that, uh, you know, being a great power and also being an Asian power. But it's had trouble defining that role and its interests. What it's had is a very strong relationship with China, and the result has been that Russia has tended to follow China's lead in Asia. That puts Russia at the table, but it doesn't let it be decisive. Now, Russia is actually starting to develop some separate relationships of its own with Southeast Asian powers, and there's the possibility of real rapprochement with Japan. So that puts Russia at the table as a real great power. But if it's successful, well, some of those countries, in fact, like the idea of ties with Russia in part to balance China. So Russia potentially is in a position of choosing between China, its long-term partner, and this promise of playing a larger role, which is its broader global goal. And you know, this hasn't come to a head yet, but you can certainly see how Southeast Asian partners might push on Russia to have slightly different views of the South China Sea. You can see that if Russia and Japan really do establish closer ties, that will make China nervous. I mean, this could really affect the the power balance game in Asia. Uh, the kind of role the United States ends up playing will also uh, be important uh, to this balance, and we don't know how that's going to evolve as yet either. But, you know, again, you have this question of if there's rapprochement between the U.S. and Russia, and the U.S. is challenging China, what does that do to Russia's relationship with China? Hmm. What are Russia's plans and actual prospects in Latin America? 
Russia's been fairly successful with arms sales in Latin America. Uh, Russia's pretty successful with arms sales around the world. Um, not quite as successful as the United States, but, you know, it has less to sell, so uh, that's not surprising. Uh, translating that into influence uh, has been a challenge for Russia, as it has been for the United States and other countries that sell weapons. Very often people will buy your weapons but not actually do what you want them to do. Um, but I'm, And I'm not even sure Russia knows what it would want Latin American countries to do. I think part of Russia's interest is in being in America's backyard in and of itself. It's a common refrain you hear in Russia regarding, well, U.S. activities, U.S. policies, and former Soviet countries that, well, what if we did this to you? What if we were mucking about in your backyard? But the problem with that is the United States hasn't actually seemed to care very much. Latin America isn't at the top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. And then, other than weapons sales, it's really not clear what Russia has to offer for these countries. And as I said uh, a moment ago, what it's trying to get from them. So, you know, it, it's kind of a presence uh, argument, and the presence is a lot of weapons sales and some trade. But it's not really clear that it means anything beyond that. Despite past Soviet support for revolutionary movements and socialist leaders in Africa, you find little real Russian leverage now. Say more about that. So sub-Saharan Africa, definitely another place where the, uh, the Russians can't cha challenge the United States for leadership because the United States isn't playing particularly. Uh, it's, the Chinese, uh, it's the Chinese who are investing in African countries with some success, though also some problems. And Russia isn't bringing that kind of investment to the table, though Russian firms uh, have tried to do a bit. Um, you know, again, it's this question of to do what? During the Cold War, you had this ideological standoff, and it was as though... Uh, Russia, the Soviet Union and the United States were trying to gather up allies and partners almost as chits on a giant game board. This isn't the model today. Uh, that isn't what the United States is trying to do. And if Russia is trying to do it, it's not succeeding. Let's go back to the nuclear issue where we began. Beyond Western political and military maneuvering close by, is it likely Putin had good reason to feel that Washington's renewed efforts towards a Star Wars missile defense demanded countermeasures or at least warning words to maintain deterrence? So, you know, the, the whole nuclear thing, the, Rus the Russians will point out that they're a nuclear power as sort of a bit of a reminder that, hey, don't get too close because we can always blow you up and blow up the world by the way we have this. It is, to a large extent, something that comes from Russian worries about their conventional weakness. In fact, their last military doctrine made a point of saying that they need to develop conventional deterrence. They need to have something in between so they're not constantly reaching um, for the nuclear toolbox because, you know, I, I take that as somewhat comforting. It means that they're not, uh, they're not thrilled with that either. But they do keep doing it um, as sort of a saber-rattling rhetorical uh, tool. Their actual doctrine, at least the doctrine on paper, has a very high bar for nuclear use. It's actually higher than the bar that's in U.S. doctrine. Um, in terms of uh, missile defenses, um, you know, there's a dirty secret about missile defenses. Uh, of course, Russian uh, systems can overcome them. Uh, missile defense systems aren't built to counter Russia, and no one can really think of a way to build missile defense systems that could. Um, put them in space, don't put them in space. Uh, there's also this question of militarization of space, which is a topic for another discussion. But it's, there, it's a set of countermeasures, really. The United States claims it's not building these things, for that it's it's not building things for Russia, it's building them against third parties, that is Iran and North Korea, which don't actually have the capability to pose 
the relevant threat. Russia, for its part, claims the systems could threaten Russia's deterrent, which they're nowhere near doing. So, you know, basically the United States is betting on the development of Iranian and North Korean capabilities, and Russia's betting on some sort of magical breakthrough in missile defense technology. Uh, you know, the cynical view of this is that in both countries, the defense industry is driving at least a little bit of this. Uh, might the mindset of Trump's arm race tweet be softened by his choice for Defense Secretary, re retired Marine General uh, Mattis, who questions any value in land-based missiles, at least? Well, the Air Force will uh, almost certainly oppose any efforts by General Mattis, assuming he's confirmed as Secretary of Defense, to get rid of ICBMs. Um, though, you know, uh, he's not the only one who has asked why you would have vulnerable systems that are really only um, only make sense for, I mean, they're first strike systems, right? Uh, if you're looking for, to nuclear stability, then you want things that are survivable, which is to say uh, that uh, could could withstand a first strike and then strike back at an adversary. That That's kind of the underlying principle of deterrence. So I think that's where his question about ICBMs comes from. Uh, the Air Force, of course, will tell a different story. <laughs> You find another paradox for Putin in the election of uh, such an admirer as the new American president uh, that the better relations they both say they seek might actually deprive the Russian leader of that hostile superpower he so loves to taunt and Trump, uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's a question that's actually been raised in Russia. I don't, I, look, the, I really don't think that the Russians... Um, expected Donald Trump to be elected president. Uh, I do think that, uh, um, you know, the, the logic of interference in U.S. elections, which, you know, I haven't, if, if, there, if there is an independent investigation of what happened, I'd love to be on it because I'd be very curious to get, you know, a closer look at the evidence and trace some of this stuff through. But a lot of really smart people have reached the conclusion that the Russians were trying to influence the election. But I think what they were trying to do you know, assuming that's the case, is um, really just demonstrate that, yes, we can play at this game, too. Because if you recall, Putin um, felt very strongly that Hillary Clinton personally was trying to keep him from being reelected president for a third term back in 2011, that the protests in Russia at that time were an American plot and were driven by by the State Department, which um, Hillary Clinton was then uh, Secretary of State. So I think, I think that was a big chunk of the interference was that they wanted to show that we can do this too, and they were willing to have Clinton come in very angry at Russia because they expected her to be angry at Russia anyway. And then, yes, it gives you this continuing ability for Russia to stand up to the United States. It uh, gives you something to blame your economic problems on. It keeps Russia playing as a great power because what's better than standing up to the United States to make you a great power? If all of that goes away, you know, on the one hand, there are real benefits because the Russians do, um, at some level, want sanctions lifted. There, you know, I, I think they also understand that if sanctions are lifted, that's not going to save Russia's economy, and then they're going to have to have some other reason for its continuing problems. But you know, some things could be possible without sanctions, which they'd like to move forward on. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it's it's very much a mixed bag. I, I would argue the Russians are trying to figure out what a Trump presidency means for them, too.
<laughs> if Putin and Trump do get the making, you have some serious warnings for the U.S. president based on the Russian leader's history and tendencies. What do you see as the best deals Trump could get? Look, I know what I'd like to see from Rapprochement, um, and it has to do with a number of areas that I see as critical to U.S. and global security, where progress is either impossible or very, very hard without Russia. Uh, that includes nuclear arms control, um, and that's and that's both a bilateral issue where it's a U.S.-Russian deal because we've got, you know, uh, about 95% of the world's uh, nuclear weapons between us. But it also, you know, once you get to smaller numbers, it could involve other countries. And it also involves working out new arrangements for conventional forces to bring down the threat level in Europe. Now, that's not a bilateral uh, question. You do have to have the other European countries at the table. Um, but, you know, if you can think about a new treaty on conventional forces, that could be very stabilizing. But again, a lot of this can't get done um, on a bilateral uh, level. Same goes for cooperation against terrorism. That also gets bogged down on the fact that we define the terms differently and our approaches are very different. But since to most Europeans, the real threat is from the South, and for most Russians, terrorism and extremism are a real concern, including from within, there, there's room for some sort of cooperation, difficult as it's been in the past. Um, all of, you know, but kind of the, this is where I'm getting with this. A lot of this stuff isn't a U.S.-Russian deal. It's a deal that involves the U.S. and Russia, but also involves other countries. Um, I think that's important. I think those are conversations that need to be had. I don't know if this is how the incoming administration sees things, uh, though. So I don't know what sort of deals they personally, or, you know, they will be looking for. I also know, or at least very strongly suspect, that deals in which the United States doesn't clearly walk away with gains are bad deals, not just because you want to get something out of a deal, but because of kind of a little slightly broader uh, issue, which is that they will either signal weakness to the Russians or the Russians will suspect some sort of underhanded plot. I wish this wasn't the case, but I think Russian behavior over the last 25 years has made it pretty clear that they see the United States through the lens of what I like to call a security dilemma, where U.S. strength is threatening and U.S. weakness needs to be exploited, which means that the best deals are the ones where everyone feels that they've gotten something and they've also given something to the other guy. It, it's sort of a way of managing the security dilemma because you can't fix it, but sort of keeping things on an even keel. And what do you see as the worst dangers from a bad deal uh, between Trump mm -hmm. and Putin for the U.S. and its allies? So what worries me most is another failed attempt at rapprochement. Uh, I mean, Trump, if he pursues better ties with Russia, will be the third U.S. president to do so in a row. Each time the relationship seems to have ended up in a worse place than it was before. And I think that's the real danger. If the U.S. and Russia make a deal and then end up regretting it, or if they make a deal and one of them ends up regretting it, uh, they'll blame the other. And we'll see a new spiraling of tension, and that's going to be bad for both countries, and it's going to be bad for the world. And do you think the Europeans will feel that they're losing something if uh, Putin and Trump uh, actually do start seeming closer? Look, if they're trying to cut deals over the heads of the Europeans, I, you know, I guess it depends on what those deals are, but the question becomes how do you enforce them? If the Europeans really think that they're getting sold out and 
being forced into positions they don't like, they will counter that. And again, we're back into this question of the U.S. It's, it, the U.S. pulling out of Europe. This is a bit different. This is the U.S. acting against the interests of European countries and the European countries deciding how to respond. Uh, you do you lose all of the benefits that we've had from this global system of security that's that's worked reasonably well. Now, I would argue it's better to start from the base you have and fix it than throw everything out the window and uh, try to rebuild from scratch. Dr. Oliker, thank you. Thank you. It's an enjoyable conversation. Dr. Olga Oliker is Russia and Eurasia Program Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Her article in the new winter issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Russian Brinkmanship, Don't Confuse Unpredictability with Strength. After we spoke, Putin said he would withdraw Russia's only aircraft carrier from operations off the coast of Syria and scale down other military intervention there in light of a ceasefire and peace talks plan negotiated with Turkey. But Fox News reported that he actually sent in more attack jets and civilian contractors, while the carrier Kuznetsov moved down the coast to Libya for live fire exercises and a visit by Khalifa Haftar, a local military commander with whom the Kremlin seeks stronger ties. In Washington, retired Marine General James Mattis, at a Senate hearing to be the new Secretary of Defense, said Putin is, quote, trying to break the North Atlantic alliance, and he was dubious about the prospects for better relations with Russia that Donald Trump has touted even after finally accepting the U.S. intelligence conclusion that Putin had ordered Internet hacking to tip the U.S. election in Trump's favor. Also featured in the new WPJ winner issue, Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on the future of feminism in China, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will feature Vienna-based author and lecturer Christian Felber talking about his book titled Change Everything, Creating an Economy for the Common Good. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.